welcome to a very special episode of the Dead Meat Podcast. I'm Vincent Price. Tonight, we embark on a journey through some of horror's most fabulous gimmicks. Many of the most infamous examples of such stunts accompany films written and directed by William Castle, starring myself, Vincent Price. In the spirit and style of these Castle films... James and Chelsea have requested I, Vincent Price, allow you five seconds to chicken out of listening to this truly spooky episode. Five, four, three, two, one. Very well, brave listener. Enjoy the Dead Meat Podcast. Be good people. What do you think? I think we're dead meat. Real dead meat. You're dead meat! Go ahead and laugh, you guys. Find the final little passes of business. Dead Meat. Welcome to the Dead Meat Podcast, an extension of the YouTube channel Dead Meat. I'm James. I'm Chelsea, and we're boyfriend and girlfriend, and we like to get scared together. Get scared together and learn together and teach together, because that's yeah. what we're doing today. <laughs> well, it's it's the Halloween season, and lots of people are going to the movies now specifically to see horror movies. That's right. And I thought it would be really fun to talk about all the dumb shit that horror movies have done to get you to come to the theater. Get those butts in the seats. Oh, yeah. And we're going to talk about the heyday of horror movie gimmicks, which are so fun. So, so much fun. I wish we still did stuff that was as cheesy as some of the things we were going to talk about. It's so, yeah, uh, uh, reading the script that you put together, it's so weird that this was how people marketed their films oh, for yeah. a while. Oh, yeah. It's very weird. I mean, we still do plenty of gimmicky stuff today. We can talk about that near the end when we kind of come up to present day. Okay. You know? Yeah. Arguably, found footage is a gimmick. Pretending something is real gets sure. you to come to the theater. I mean, I'm definitely thinking 3D. 3D for sure. D-boxes. What the hell is that? A D-box? It's those moving seats? That sounds like a form of birth control. It does, yeah. <laughs> like a D-box pack. Oh, oh what, like the, the 4D stuff? Is that what you're talking about? It's No, it's it's the seat you sit in and it moves. And it's synced up to the movie. Oh. So only a few theaters have them. I've done it before. For what movie? <sighs> Weirdly, so I was I was in town uh, back in Michigan, and my sister and I wanted to go see a D-Box movie really badly. The only movie playing with D-Box was Inception, and it was really weird. Ah. <laughs> I don't... I think D-Box, you got to go see. I really wanted to see Mad Max with the D-Box. That'd be cool. I was thinking Snowpiercer. Yes, a movie like... Or Fast and Furious <laughs> Yeah, movie. like a kinetic movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to start off our conversation about gimmicks, I'm going to read you a quote. And I want you to kind of guess or try to tell me what the context of this quote is or what is being described. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Last night, I was in the kingdom of shadows. If you only knew how strange it is to be there. It is a world without sound, without color. Everything there, the earth, the trees, the people, the water, and the air is dipped in monotonous gray. Gray rays of sun across the gray sky Gray eyes and gray faces, and the leaves of the trees are ashen gray. It is not life, but it's shadow. It is not motion, but it's soundless specter. It's And it's not just movies? It's not just going to the movies? Is it just going to the movies? Yeah. When do you think this was written? Oh, uh, I don't know, 1913? This is from 1896. Oh, wow. This is a, this is a quote by Maxim Gorky. Who was oh, like a cool. Russian? He later I was really important in like Russian film theory. Yeah, and criticism. I definitely read some Gorky in school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure. So this is his first time seeing a movie. This is from a screening of Lumiere Brothers movies. Oh, okay. So it's Trip like to the moon type stuff. It no, it's more like people leaving the factory. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. I mix up the Lumiere Brothers and the uh, Millier movies. Millier did. Trip I believe moon? so. Okay. So yeah, my bad. It's but been yeah, a while. this is someone watching a movie for the first time, and I think one, it's cool to just hear someone from back then saying like, 
no, black and white movies are weird, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, he doesn't sound too impressed. It's not life. It's just is kind of weird and boring and soulless. But it also, I think, is important if we're going to be talking about movie gimmicks to kind of understand that film itself was seen as a gimmick at first. Later in this essay, he's kind of like, I don't really know what this could be used for. I predict it'll be used for essentially pornographic reasons, which he's correct. He's right. Yep. Um, 100%. But I think it's interesting to point out that while some of the stuff we're going to be talking about is clearly, it's gimmicky. And these things were invented to last the test of time, mm-hmm. you know? But other things that are seen as gimmicky, like 3D or sound or color or just film, yeah, those are things we take for granted now, but had their start made to make people come see mm-hmm. a movie. To talk about early film, we had to talk about Tom Gunning. Tom Gunning? Tom Gunning. If you're in film school, you're probably like, what the fuck? Why are we doing this? He's, uh, I'm not familiar. <laughs> he's a he's a film uh, like theorist and academic. For our purposes, his outline of early film works really, really well to kind of link it to the really weird shit that movies start doing decades later to get people to come to the theater. Okay. So besides real life movies, which is footage of, again, like workers leaving the factory, a train pulling into the station. Prior to 1906, the most dominant type of film was the trick film, which is that's like a millier film where it's like magic tricks or um, illusions. And they're just kind of demonstrating what you can do with film, like making stuff disappear. Okay. Or, yeah, exactly. So they're just... There were, you know, you have some of these where they have a plot, but they're mostly just to demonstrate the type of stuff you can do with film, the possibilities. It's kind of just the showcase of the technology, then. Yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, like you, like a film student might watch to like see the different examples of things you can do with film. Like, here's a uh, like in camera tricks. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, this is in camera stuff. So like filming something and then cutting it and the person moves out of frame and then recording again and they just disappeared Mm -hmm. like simple shit like that yeah exactly so the way that these early films too were kind of exhibited they also reflect this prioritization of the spectacle of movies and not plot so and when you say exhibited uh that just means played played in a theater yeah exhibitors are movie theaters Mm mm-hmm and that's just, uh, I feel like, a term that not everyone would be familiar with if you're not steeped in film industry or film yeah, history. Yeah, and I refer to them as exhibitors, and, and film history refers to them as exhibitors because they have a lot more control over what they're doing with the films when they get them. Nowadays, it's you run a theater, you get a new film the the company that's giving you the film is telling you how to play it. You have specs. You have you don't have artistic liberty with yeah. How. And hopefully, uh, it's not Christopher Nolan, and you can just put your movie into a single projector and <laughs> yeah. play it. And I have to play it at three different yes, exactly. But these early film exhibitors, they could re-edit stuff. They could add their own off-screen flourishes, which is. <laughs> kind of reminiscent of what we're going to get later with William Castle movies where there's stuff going on that's not on the screen. Yeah. Uh, Again, that's a little different. That's William Castle being like, all right, theater owner, here's what you're going to do. You're going to construct this elaborate pulley system in front of the screen for this trick I'm doing. But this is the exhibitors (laughs) themselves doing this. So one example that I adore so much is the quote from Tom Gunning. Perhaps the most extreme example is the Hales Tours, the largest chain of theaters exclusively showing films before 1906. Not only did the films consist of non-narrative sequences taken from moving vehicles, usually trains, but the theater itself was arranged as a train car with a conductor who took tickets and sound effects simulating the click-clack of wheels and hiss of air brakes. Fun. Really fun. I hope the people like were dressed as conductors, too. I... No, I think so. Oh, with a conductor who took tickets. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fun. So that's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> when was uh when was the the film that like people hit under their chairs and shit because they thought a train was gonna hit them? That would have been around the same time. I think that's a bit of a 
uh, apocryphal story. Yeah, yeah exaggeration. It sounds because like it's it. not how stupid are. I you? think a good comparison is so modern day VR. Mm-hmm. You you put on a VR helmet. If you've ever worn a VR helmet, you your brain just thinks that you're gonna fall off a cliff, or if something's coming towards you, it's gonna hit you. You don't actually think that's gonna happen it's just your brain yeah that's so a good that's I a good i think comparison. that that's closer to what was going so, on so yeah they might have physically reacted but i don't think but they're not level, like they're the not train's like... gonna come out of the screen which <laughs> yeah, is how i yeah, think yeah, some yeah. people tell that story it's a bit it's that's not quite <laughs> give them some credit <laughs> so early film audiences went to the cinema to see demonstrations of this new technology rather than seeing films themselves Again, cinema as attraction. Yeah, like a showcase of technology. Yeah. That's fun. So we'll see this later with, like you said, 3D or smell-o-vision mm. or promises of the monster coming out of the screen, which we'll talk about. Uh, you could argue that the close-up in movies was an early gimmick. So that's something we take for granted now because we understand that they're a really good way to convey extra information or emotion, but you have to remember when film was new, we didn't have that kind of language. That yeah. just that didn't come out of nowhere. So people had to figure out that stuff like close-ups is yeah. effective. And we mentioned that in the Invisible Man review because that was such an early film that was from the 30s that they, they were still figuring out the language of film. And so that's why the close-ups in that movie seemed so disjointed and weird because mm-hmm. like they hadn't fully integrated it into like the language of what we were watching. Right. Whereas now you watch a movie and it, it has to feel natural. It can't be like that. Yeah. And Gunning argues, and this is a much disputed argument in this essay, I was reading other ones where they're like, no, Gunning's full of shit. But Gunning argues that close-ups originally didn't serve a narrative purpose at all, really. <laughs> so you think of, there's a movie called The Gay Shoe Clerk, which if you've <laughs> taken old film classes, you've seen this before. I don't think I have. I'm going to Really? Yeah. Oh, it, I mean, it's short. It'll take you like a minute. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, there's a woman, this is 1903, by the way, there's a woman trying on shoes and there's a cut to a close-up of her ankle. So she's lifting up her, her dress to put on the shoe and it's Ooh. very, yeah, it's, it's kind of purposely titillating and it's funny mm. now. <laughs> and I think after, if I remember right, the woman who's kind of with her, who's more of a matronly woman, starts like hitting the the clerk with her bag or her umbrella or whatever. She starts chasing him around like naughty, naughty. Why? He's probably not even interested. Get it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Words have different meanings over time. They do. <laughs> so it's arguably a gimmick because at least gunning thinks it's there to just kind of get a rise out of you. So you're going to see this movie like, I'm going to get to see a lady's ankle. <laughs> but now with we take them for granted, we would never think of a close-up in a movie as like a gimmick or a trick. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So another big element of film that originally was received as something gimmicky is sound. Mm-hmm. Like <laughs> we all take sound for granted, but there was a big debate over sound when it came out. We start getting them in the 20s, and when the jazz singer comes out, which is like the first full-length movie with synchronized sound and dialogue, reviewers kind of brushed it off, and they dismissed it as, this is a glorified, this is an Al Jolson record, but with some film attached. Yeah, and by synchronized sound and dialogue, that just means... Everything you watch now, which is like the Every, sound yes. is going. It's with, coming out of people's mouths. Yeah. Uh, right. As opposed to, I'd say, prior to this and probably uh, contemporaneously with this, the sound being played on a piano uh, in yeah, the theater. Exactly. Like music being played. Because, yeah, when you go to see a silent film back then, it's not, you're not sitting in a silent theater. There's music being played. It's just not coming from the screen. It's coming from a live performer mm-hmm. playing their little piano. Uh, you can see a little bit of this at El Capitan, the th- Disney theater oh, yeah. in Hollywood. Because they, they do. They have oh my a- gosh, yes. It's the time of year. Okay, so every October, if you go see like Hocus Pocus or whatever Disney, like Halloween Disney movie they're showing, they have an organ and they always play the skeleton dance. That's Disney right. skeleton dance. And he plays it. He plays live along with it. And it's yeah. so fun. So that would be more like the experience of people before synchronized sound exactly. is you go there. And so like, you know. I, I imagine people would pick their theaters based on the quality of the theater's piano player. Yeah, like, oh, I don't want to go there. That guy sucks. Oh, my God. I'm just getting flashbacks to my silent cinema class. 
So when you don't have the person to play shit along with the movie and you have to watch these old silent movies, you're just sitting there. You have a screening that's an hour and some long. It's completely silent and you're just watching these old silent movies. It was so boring. (laughs) I mean, some silent films you can get now with the music on yeah. you know, the soundtrack, obviously. But yeah. Oh my God. Uh, if it's just the sound of the projector, you that and is like a people eating snacks. Recipe to fall asleep, which is Oh, what I, I slept did a lot often. in that class. Yeah. Uh, other fun fact about Jazz Singer. Jazz Singer has two things you need to know about it. One, first feature length film with synchronized sound. Two, Al Jolson in blackface. I was going to say, <laughs> a lot of blackface in that movie. It's unfortunate that ultimately it's a really important movie, but then you watch it and you're like, wow, holy fuck. Oh it's my God. so funny that like, yeah, two fun facts about this one. <laughs> I just remember as a kid, we would go see IMAX movies at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn. Yeah. It's back in Michigan. And they play a thing that's kind of the history of film. And you get a clip of the jazz singer. And he's like, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet, which is like a really famous line. That's like the line. Yeah. And, you know, as a kid, you see that as an isolated clip. And it's amazing as an adult uh, seeing the context. Is he wearing blackface when he says that? No, No, God, I don't think they would ever... (laughs) I just yeah I just know that like you know you'll you'll you may hear that referenced I know Venture Brothers uh did a Al Jolson reference when a character wore blackface (laughs) (laughs) um so this is the quote from a from a filmmaker um Paul I I don't know if it's Rotha or Rotha Mm. but it's 1930 a film in which the speech and sound effects are perfectly synchronized and coincide with their visual image on the screen is absolutely contrary to the aims of cinema it is a degenerate and misguided attempt to destroy the real use of film and cannot be accepted as coming within the true boundaries of the cinema. Oh, ho, ho. Yeah. sorry, Mr. Roth. A lot of critics said it's it sounds weird. Like, they obviously don't sound like real people, though apparently when the jazz singer premiere, people chanted, Jolson, Jolson, <laughs> in the audience. So. Yeah, because, you know, recording d- technology doesn't always start the way that you're familiar with it now and uh especially capturing sound is kind of you know that's kind of a miracle that we can do it to yeah. begin with you ever hear old like phonograph record oh, like it just wax sounds recordings? like bees It sounds like I'm talking to you like this because it's so hard to capture that quality. So, yeah, these early recording devices uh, wouldn't necessarily capture the entire range of the voice and leave you sounding. Yeah, and it sounds creepy. And this is why it's interesting to point out that this is when we get the horror genre. Like, horror as a defined genre is born right around this exact time. And those early horror films, like, Frankenstein, Dracula, they have sound and it's that uncanny quality of sound that really adds to it instead of detracts from it. Yeah. So it's that plus the use of sound effects. And so, yeah, it's it's a good early example of horror using novelty to draw people in as will become tradition. So horror is right at the beginning experimenting with color, too. So there's, if you watch the old Phantom of the Opera, the Lon Chaney one, there's sequences. A lot of old films do this, too, where there's, it's black and white, but all of a sudden you'll get this blue wash over the whole screen or yellow to kind of convey emotion. Or night or day. Or, yeah, night or day. I remember Nosferatu does that with Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of colors. Yeah. So... Okay, so at this point, we got, okay, sound, fine. Sound is a given in film now, but col- then color comes along, and it's another big upset. And when was this? Um, 40s? 50s? No, much earlier. This would be... Well, I guess Wizard of Oz was from the 30s, Yeah, that had the color This segments. would be like the 30s. But with Wizard of Oz, importantly, the, the real stuff in that movie, the stuff that doesn't take place in Oz, is black and is white. Is black and white, yeah. And that's not like... It's funny because we look at that now and it might it may confuse people as to why that's the case. Isn't it because the black and white seemed more realistic to people? I think then? it seemed more Yeah, Normal like or coded standard? to this is the real which is so bizarre. It's so weird yeah. that the fantasy sequence was denoted by being in color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
so this movie, Becky Sharp in 1935. This specially prepared scene of Miriam Hopkins as Becky Sharp shows her transformed from phantom shadows into the breathless beauty of living color by the greatest achievement in motion pictures since the advent of sound. It's the first full-length Technicolor movie. One critic wrote that all of the actors looked like roast turkeys. <laughs> and this is a quote from the president of Technicolor. This guy co-founded Technicolor. If a script has been conceived, planned, and written for black and white, it should not be done at all in color. <laughs> so, yeah. So, nonetheless, stuff like color and sound, they end up standing the test of time, obviously, because we just kind of assume those things will be there when we go see a movie. Yeah. Yeah. And not including them is an artistic choice. Which, as we pointed out by 1968 with Night of the Living Dead or even 1960 with Psycho, it is an artistic choice to film those in black and white or mm-hmm. a budget or choice. Or budget, yeah. But, uh, yeah, they were definitely not the standard by that point. Yeah. Color was. So, ultimately, they get people to go to the theater. And that's also why the weird movie gimmicks we're about to talk about existed, too, because they got people to go to the theater. They all exist for the same reason, Stuff like color and sound stands the test of time. Things we're going to talk about, maybe not so much. Although some <laughs> we are, some we're going to discuss were intended to. Maybe this is an, a, another sense we can explore that will stand the test yeah, of time. The skeleton sense. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so one of the most important reasons as to why we start getting a ton of movie theater gimmicks in the 1950s is the United States versus Paramount case in 1948, the antitrust case. This is a Supreme Court case that broke up the big studio monopolies, and it opened up a ton of room for indie filmmakers to release because their films. prior to this, the studios would own they the theaters. They owned the theaters. They owned so, everything. Yeah. So you would, and that was called uh, vertical integration, yep. right? Top down. Yep. Uh, so you would have, uh, you know, Paramount would own the theater in mm-hmm. town. And so you would go to the theater, and it would only be playing Paramount movies. And so imagine, you know, I bet most of you don't pay attention to what studios make what films. I barely do. And it's kind of my job to know that stuff. It's weird because we're getting to a point where we're starting to see this kind of stuff again, where it's the same five or so studios making every movie. And I think it was, was it Netflix that they, there was something about Netflix wanting to have a chain of theaters and everyone was like, no, there was a whole court case about this. We can't do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a difference between like vertical monopoly and horizontal monopoly. But this case was against like the ver- like owning everything from. And then block booking everything, which That's is right. just you book every, you own the theater. Therefore, you can book every spot in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, just imagine going to a theater and only being able to watch one studio's movies. Yeah, that sucks. I'm sure most it of you would not be ass. happy. Maybe yeah. the Disney fans would be all right. Yeah. <laughs> so then when there's the Supreme Court case happens, it opens up so much room for independent films, a, just a wider variety of movies. So now you have... Uh, distributors resorting to gimmicks to get people to come because they're fighting against this. They're fighting against television. Now people have TV in their homes and just, yeah, an increase in the variety of movies that theaters can book. Now theaters can choose to book whatever movies. So now people have to get creative, especially the big studios have to get creative. And it's not, it's important, I think, to point out, it's not that gimmicks didn't exist at all before this, but this, like, all of these factors make gimmicks just blow up because the market is just so much crazier mm-hmm. at this point. Uh, big studio movies would typically get released with press books, which were guides for theaters on how to market the films. So after this court case, industry distributors start sending out really weird press books, and I found some online, and they're Ooh. great. This is from the Creature from the Black Lagoon, 1954. Yes, this is from their press book. Dealers in tropical fish and aquarium supplies in general should be interested in this picture, which shows many underwater fish. As part of the tie-up, offer dealers the opportunity of displaying aquariums of tropical fish in your lobby. Yep. And they would offer cutout displays with the creature to put in front of the aquarium so it looks like... The creatures swimming around with fish and stuff. That's fun. Yeah. 
Uh, a lot of theaters did one-person screenings where they would invite one person, usually a teenage girl, to see the movie alone at night so the press could interview them after. What, for that movie specifically? Yeah. <laughs> yep. Sounds like a sweet deal. I know, right? <laughs> like, hell yes. I think it said to offer her beverages and snacks. I was like, fuck yes. Why don't we do this? <laughs> So even I, I had to put this one in because it's real, real good. Even non-horror films would have to do gimmicky shit. So this is Ooh. one for Jailhouse Rock in 1957. Elvis Presley's sideburns are world famous. Capitalize on this fact by holding a best sideburns competition in your theater lobby one hour before your box office opens for Jailhouse Rock. Have a board of teenage girls as the judges. Offer prizes for the best sideburns in your town and free admissions for the runners up. <laughs> They say white people have no culture. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, we got boards of teenage girls. Boards of them. Boards of them. Judging your facial hair. Oh, man. This is the... So, as much as I know and believe it's stupid to get nostalgic for earlier decades, (laughs) this is the 50s I miss. You you want to be a sideburns judge, I do. I want to live in the John Waters 1950s, I think. Oh, God. Where it's just this shit. Yeah. Always. He'll be in here. Oh, we're, yeah, we're going to talk about John Waters. <laughs> um, then this is the Giant Claw, a movie about a giant bird in okay. 1957. If there's a bird watchers society in your town, invite its members to a screening of the Giant Claw and arrange for them to voice their opinions of the flying monster to the press and on radio interview shows. Ask them to give their opinions on the creature, what family of birds it resembles, and the probability of ever seeing one. <laughs> This one's an example of an earlier gimmick. This is from 1944, so it's pre the antitrust case, but it's very good. (laughs) It's for the return of the ape man, 1944. Do you want to read it? Uh, Sure. Dress one of the neighborhood kids in a white sheet. Have them carry a card on a stick reading, This theater unfair to organized ghosts. We're even afraid to see the new horror film, Return of the Ape Man. Mm Mm-hmm. Just give him a stick and a sign. Give him a stick and a sign. Honestly, most of the press folks I found, I picked some of the ones that were a little, they were different, but you get, you notice a pattern in all these press books. Most of them involve get a bunch of neighborhood kids and give them (laughs) sticks with signs on them that say, go see this movie. Cool. So this that is, those kids didn't get paid anything. <laughs> no, God, absolutely Maybe some popcorn. Not. I think I think some would encourage free um, tickets. And, sure. Yeah. There you go. Uh, so this is why we start getting 3D around this time, and this is an example of a gimmick that isn't all. You know, it's not something we all expect when we see a movie a lot of people still hate it and i would say a lot of people maybe most people still see it as a gimmick but it's one that we still do because it makes money well what's interesting is that uh like we mentioned just a few minutes ago all these gimmicks start popping up in part because everyone's starting to get tvs yeah and you're trying to pull people away from the tv in their home where they're comfortable Mm -hmm. and into the theater where they can get a unique theater experience one of which is 3d that's also, why it's happening, or why it happened, you know, I'd say about 10 years ago, uh, Avatar, when was that? Avatar would have been 2009. Okay, yeah, so about yeah. 10 years ago now. Uh, that wave of 3D occurred, I think, at least partially for the same reason, because people's home TV systems were getting larger, and uh, theaters could no longer bank on giving you the experience of, like, a big screen. right. Because people could just stay at people home. People could just watch a giant ass TV at home. Yeah. So it was like, okay, well, maybe come to the theater to get 3D. And then 3D TVs started coming out. Yeah. And we have one. Uh, yeah. Barely ever used it. Yeah. What did we do? Little Mermaid, I think. Little, we watched, we watched Little 3D. Mermaid. I like the Disney movie, the old Disney movies in 3D. They're kind They're of a bad, neat effect. It's it's definitely a like, well, that was fine. And yeah. Yeah. You have to sit in kind of the perfect spot to watch it. Yeah. This The, the current wave of 3D is, is it dead now? Is it, is it done? I think people are over it. Right? I know that they, I think they still are doing it though because like it makes money. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. No, they definitely. They definitely inflate those box office numbers since the yes. ticket prices are it, like they're twice so much more much. expensive. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I can't, I can't think of like the last like big event 3D because my mind keeps going to Gravity, and that was a while. That was ago a while now. back, but that was a great 
experience. It was, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, and I thought it was interesting that in the 50s, you're not using the red and blue 3D glasses. Like, oh, yeah. Like we have Billy wearing some. <laughs> you were already doing the polarized glasses, which are closer to what we have now. Yeah, They're kind of an in-between now. between the red and blue and what we use now. Uh, yeah, like you mentioned, you get Cinerama, Cinescope, ways to make the screen bigger Mm -hmm. because tvs are getting bigger and theaters need to keep up with it so beyond these maybe more logical types of gimmicks (laughs) we are now going to talk about i know you've all been waiting for it the king of gimmicks william castle there's got to be a sound that plays here some kind of fanfare Castle is a film director working for studios, I think Columbia, and he was making B-movies for them. And after he got a lot of experience there, he just he went off on his own and he decided he wanted to make thrillers and horror movies. He first makes Macabre in 1958, which he finances by mortgaging his house. Uh, it was apparently shot in a week. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that was so much fun. it's about a father who only has five hours to find his daughter who's been kidnapped and buried alive and William Castle knows that this movie isn't awesome he knows it's not great so he decides he needs a gimmick your attention please during every suspenseful moment of the running of the motion picture macabre the life of everyone in this theater will be insured by Lloyd's of London for $1,000 against death by fright Wait, so what, this is the general life insurance policy, like, for anyone who dies? Anyone who dies, you're... Can you do that? Apparently. (laughs) They had, for promotion, there would be copies of the insurance policy in newspaper ads and at theaters and stuff. It was real. He really, he bought an insurance policy for $1,000. Wow. No one died, but if you did die, your family or loved ones would get 1000 bucks. So they had... You know what you do. You send your terminally ill like, <laughs> just into fingers that crossed into that, that movie theater. So there were people in nurses' outfits in the movie theater lobbies, hearses <laughs> parked outside, and this gimmick made the movie a huge hit. And this is from John Waters' book, Crackpot. Okay, so this is John, John Waters. Waters. I, I, John Waters, I think, has said Will and Castle is his biggest idol this that is makes, his icon this is god um that makes 100 percent sense yeah do you yeah. want to read john waters's quote okay i'll try audiences <laughs> just, just i'll just read it okay. i can't do a john waters audiences fell hook line and sinker nobody talked about the movie but everyone was eager to see if some jerk would drop dead and collect of course no one died but if they had it would have been even better a death of any kind inside the theater would only have cost Lloyd's of London a paltry $1,000. And think of the hype that would have generated. Yeah. <laughs> I love John Waters. Hold on. Let, ever... me go, uh, let me go shave my mustache into a pencil. Oh, yeah. Pencil thin line for the next one. <laughs> if you ever have the chance to see John Waters live, do it. It's so fun. I went and saw his Christmas show in L.A., I took my mom. It was the filthiest thing I've ever seen, and we had a great time. Or if you want to see John Waters dead, watch Seed of Chucky. That's right. He actually, oh, I forgot that um, John Waters played William Castle in Feud. Do you remember when Joan Crawford is in that shitty movie where she's like running down the aisles of the movie theater with a hatchet, and it's really sad and weird? It's after they made Baby Jane? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. John Waters was William Castle. It was a, that was a William Castle movie. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, that actually, Great. that happened. Ladies and gentlemen, the star of Straight Jacket, Miss Joan Crawford. Oh, no. Don't panic, but, but a mad woman is loose in this theater. Oh. Yo, Feud. Feud's real good. Did that second season ever come out? I don't know. Probably by now. It's been, I've, I don't know, but uh, that first season... Wow, very good. So good. So for his next movie, House on Haunted Hill in 1959, Castle brought the scares right into the audience. <laughs> There's a scene near the end of the film where a skeleton seemingly comes to life and pushes a woman into a vat of acid. It's then revealed that Vincent Price's character is puppeteering the skeleton. So during the scene, a skeleton on pulleys and wires would fly over the audience. And this effect, this gimmick, was advertised as Emerjo. <laughs> it sounds gross out loud. <laughs> yeah. And it promised that the, the thrills would come 
right to you. Man, I'm a theater owner. I get this film with the instructions. Hey, you got to rig a up a reason his system. movie started getting less because theaters were like, yeah, all no right, thanks. we're done. I think as soon as the movies themselves started to make less money, theaters were like, we're done booking. No, this. thanks, this Bill. I just ass. won't show your house on Hill, whatever the fuck. I'm not going to rig up a goddamn skeleton yeah. to my theater. And then on top of it, as the movie got more and more popular, kids knew when the skeleton was going to fly out. So it became part of it to throw snacks and drinks or whatever at the skeleton. Bill, now you got the kids in town just making a mess of my fucking theater. The floors are sticky. There's popcorn everywhere. All because of your stupid skeleton. Just make a good movie. The thing is, is this is a good movie. That, <laughs> this movie's good. There's a few of his movies that are like, I think, they're good. The Tingler is supposed to, uh, to be good oh, too. Really? Uh-huh. I think I'm realizing that I've, I've maybe never seen any uh, Castle films. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I think I've seen, I think I've seen House on Haunted Hill. Um, that is not the not, it's Chris Kattan confusing. one. The Chris Kattan one's a remake of this. Okay. Yes. Yes. And that's not, that has nothing to do with, with the, the haunting, haunting. Or the haunting of Hill House. Which was the book the haunting, haunting was based it's on. It's very confusing. And none of them are based on uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill. Yeah, which is a board game. Yeah. Uh, there's still theaters that occasionally show this movie with the Emerjo effect. Ooh. So if you, if you, you can find videos on YouTube, which I did. It's very fun. Do um, people throw shit at it? No, I think because these are being screened at more like local indie art house theaters and yeah. people are more just, yes, they're pumped <laughs> as fuck when that skeleton comes out. But this is why it's worth, by the way, keeping an eye on locally owned theaters in your town because local theaters can do stuff like this that yeah. big theaters can't. Your AMC ain't going to rig up no skeleton no on the way, ceiling, dude. I'll tell you that. No way. So perhaps Castle's most famous movie gimmick of all time <laughs> is his setup for 1959's The Tingler. I'm William Castle, and I feel obligated to warn you about the next attraction you will see at this theater. The picture is The Tingler, which I directed. And for the first time in motion picture history, Members of the audience, including you, will actually play a part in the picture. The Tingler's posters promised that the Tingler itself would break loose into the audience during the film in what was called Percepto. And some featured images of a theater seat asking if you had the guts to sit there. Sit on my face, I dare you. Sit on me, do it. (laughs) You coward. (laughs) The movie again stars Vincent Price who is playing a scientist who's discovered a parasite that lives off fear by attaching itself to your spine. Trailers introduced by Castle himself explain that you will be given instructions on how to protect yourself. That is, the only way to kill the tingler when it attaches itself to you is to scream. The trailers also encourage you to scream and to not be embarrassed because it might save your life. You know who would never get tingled? Uh, I don't know. Belial. <laughs> <laughs> Belial would be so. I don't. Safe Belial has the, the base of a spine for the tingler to <laughs> yeah. attach itself. Is Belial to. An I don't think he has a spine at all. He might be an invertebrate. Yeah. Uh, during the sequence in the film when the tingler escapes into the audience, Vincent Price yells, "Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream, scream for your lives!" And buzzers attached to chairs in the theater would go off randomly, hopefully causing the audience to scream. It's been said, I think by Castle himself, that these buzzers were, they they gave you electric shocks, but that's not true. They're more like the, have you ever done the handshake buzzer? That's not an electric shock? No, no, no. It's it's a thing that I have one in Michigan. I have so much dumb shit like that <laughs> back. I loved gag gifts and stuff growing up. You like kind of... Mine, at least, you wound it up. So when you you shake someone's hand, it, it presses the button down and it kind of like buzzes. It's oh. not an electric shock. Interesting. So that's what these were. And I guess that they... Only on your butts. Yes. On your butts. Nice. And I guess that these were also just little surplus motors from the military. So he bought them in bulk. <laughs> <laughs> this is a quote from his daughter, Terry Castle. I don't know how he talked these independent theaters into letting him shock the audience's butts. It was a fairly simple device, but he had to work hard to get the studio's marketing department to buy off on it and also to persuade the exhibitors to do the gimmick. I can't imagine that working today. No, it would not. No, it would not. Because apparently, I mean, this one, I think, is probably the most elaborate set up. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's theaters that still do this too. Of course there are. Um God, I just now I would just wish I wanna like organize a screening of this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In 1960, William Castle released 13 Ghosts, which Ooh, there's, a, I always think of the remake. Yes, with uh, our boy. What did I just say? Did I just say there's a petting zoo downstairs? No, there are ghosts downstairs, Arthur. Uh, Matthew Lillard. Yes, our boy Matthew Lillard in yeah. the 13th Ghosts remake, highly requested for the kill count because Ooh, really? there's a person who gets split in half vertically. I remember that. Glass. That's the only thing I remember. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, it's about an occultist who leaves a house to his family in his will. The house is, of course, haunted, but the uncle also leaves behind a pair of goggles through which you can see the ghosts. The audience also had special lenses to reveal the ghosts, and this gimmick was referred to as Illusiono. That's right. I think <laughs> there are some uh, home video releases of this with the glasses. Really? I'll try to track I would down. love to get one, yeah. When you came in, you were given a special ghost viewer like this. And here's how it works. Before the film, William Castle explained how to use the visors. They basically were a piece of cardboard with a blue tinted strip and a red tinted strip. So think of the the blue and the red in 3D glasses. Yeah, but like strips. But they're on top of each Yeah, yeah. they're strips on top of each other. So at certain points, the film itself would turn a vivid shade of blue. This is when you look through the blue lens if you didn't believe in ghosts <laughs> or you could look through the red lens and the ghosts would reveal themselves Ooh. or you could just watch the film without the visor and you <laughs> see both at the same time you can see you can look like shit yeah it's just the screen's blue and then there's red ghosts kind of moving around on it nice in 1961's Homicidal, which is about a female serial killer, William Castle very boldly included a fright break right before the climax of the film where the main character enters the house of the killer. A stopwatch with a 45-second countdown appears on screen, allowing you to leave if you're too afraid. This is the fright break. Ten seconds more and we go into the house. It's now or never. Five. Four, you're a brave audience. Two, one. I'm sorry, but with that as the act break, I'm just imagining Silence of the Lambs. Oh, she was a big old frat lady, right? Fright break. Fright. If you're too afraid to finish this movie. <laughs> to go into his house, because that is right what you <laughs> That's where it would be. Oh, yeah. A great big fat person, right? Stop watch. This is William Castle. No, it'd be, it'd be Jonathan Demi. This is Jonathan oh. Demi. Oh, man. R.I.P. R.I.P. Um, you also would get your money back if you Ooh, left. But I love but this. I love. <laughs> I love this, this bamboozle. I love this so much. Oh my god! So a lot of people would uh, uh, commonly pay to see one screening, sit in the theater until the next screening came. So they could. They watch would the whole wait. Movie. They would watch basically the whole thing again, but wait till the fright break, then leave, and then get the refund for the first movie know what i did i saw one and a half movies for free today (laughs) (laughs) all i had to do was sit through that movie most of the second time worth it (laughs) (laughs) so to counteract having to issue a bunch of refunds castle later added a coward's corner Patrons wanting to get their money back now would have to follow a yellow line to a booth in the lobby where they'd have to sign a certificate that said, I'm a bona fide coward, and have a nurse take their blood pressure before receiving their refund. I bet that fucking worked on some dudes. What, the coward's corner? Oh, it did. I don't want no certificate. They said that it, it fixed the issue of people leaving during it that's so funny yeah it's like okay yeah i'll sign your stupid piece of paper there's a trash can right over there that's gonna be the home of this thing in a second but that's the thing is apparently this is again from john waters book when you're leaving to go to this coward's corner there's even a recording that's like look at the chicken look at him going to coward's corner yeah so it shamed you it was just public shaming (laughs) so basically yeah if you have okay that's fun yeah that's a lot of fun i love it in 1961, his especially wait, what, what year is that? What year is that one? 1961. Yeah, yeah. Imagine, he was a I'm, busy dude. I'm just imagining like Don Draper. Like, <laughs> he wouldn't. He wouldn't fucking go get that. Don certificate. wouldn't leave. Pete would leave. 
uh, but not as soon as they introduce Coward's Corner. That's true. He's, he he's would, not walking he would that yellow line. He would sit there and deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 1961, his movie, Mr. Sardonicus, the climax of the film, implemented a punishment poll. So audiences would vote whether to punish Mr. Sardonicus. Was he like the villain of the movie? Yes. He was a guy with his face frozen in a really scary grin. When you come to see Mr. Sardonicus, you will receive a, a ballad like this. At a certain point in the picture, you will vote thumbs up or thumbs down and there's there would be a clip of william castle pretending to tally up the votes and he would talk to the audience like you there in the back row hold yours up higher so i can read it (laughs) so be it you have given the verdict you have made the decision and the majority of you have sentenced mr sardonicus to further punishment mr projectionist let the sentence be carried out audiences would obviously always vote punish to the point where it's disputed if the mercy ending was ever even shot. William Castle and I believe his daughter, who I was reading the interview with, claim that it was. They claim it was produced. They claim it exists. But actors in the film and film historians in general believe that it just never existed. But I just want to (laughs) believe. I want to believe it exists. No, there's no way. There, the, then, what is it? The Stanford Prison Experiment, <laughs> or no? Mil, I think it's the Milgram's one. Uh, whatever Sykes experiment showed that people are just the electric shocks. Yeah, land? I think that's Milgram's. Yeah, yeah, just show that people are awful. <laughs> so, but I mean, Mister Sardonicus is a pretty bad guy, and also during the clip, um, William Castle is really admonishing you for wanting to not punish him. Really, he's like. Think of all the things he did, like what he did to that poor girl and what blah, blah. So if you're one of those do-good types who blah, 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 and (laughs) he just totally emasculates you for wanting to have mercy. William Castle is a lot of fun. Um, So his gimmicks work so well, and his movies make so much money that they inspire other filmmakers to start doing the same things and including one of the most famous filmmakers of all time and maybe a movie that you might be surprised to see showing up on this list right after a bunch of William Castle movies, Alfred Hitchcock, when he was marketing Psycho. He, uh, so, so it's also important to not forget that Psycho, what it has in common with the William Castle movies that is that Psycho is also self-financed and self-produced. So that's why he took a look at Castle's movies because they were in the same scenario. And he was like, well, what did this dude do successfully? And that's why Hitchcock starts implementing a policy with Psycho. And this is on all the posters that no one would be admitted after the film began, which at first I thought, well, yeah, no one's going to come after a movie starts. But apparently that was a common practice. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, because at first, I I think theater owners were pissed. They were like, we're going to lose a ton of profit if you can't let people in halfway through, because that's what a lot of people do. But yeah, that is weird, but it sounds right. Yeah. Treating movies like more casually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it worked. It, It incited curiosity about the movie. And it also ensured that people would get to see the star of the movie before she's killed off right in the beginning. So that you don't have people wanting their money back if they show up late and she's not in it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this this next gimmick is what I was kind of talking about when we were discussing sound, color, things that have maybe stood the test of time. And what this next thing, we, we see it as a gimmick. We see it as something dumb. But the intent there genuinely was, what if this could enhance movies? This could be the future of film because we're adding another sense to the experience. And of course, we're talking about smell-o-vision. Yeah. Uh, smell-o-vision is actually, I think of it like Kleenex when, you know how when people say tissues, they'll say, can you get me a Kleenex? But mm-hmm. that's the brand name. Yeah. Smell-o-vision is just one, it's like a specific type of that kind of experience. Okay. It's like a brand. It's like Coke. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there was, speaking of Coke. What's what's the general name of it? Um. I don't I don't know. I feel like people just refer to it as smell vision. Yeah. Yeah. Um but, but there, there was a there, there was, was a, a Coke V Pepsi. There were there was a, a, a Coke Wars type thing with Aroma Rama. Aroma Rama came out right Aroma-rama. around the same time. There was a genuine rivalry between these two 
systems. That would have been a great street fight to watch. God, I know. <laughs> so fun. They're just spraying smells. <laughs> You're rotten eggs. <laughs> uh, so Aromorama technically came first, only weeks before Smell-O-Vision. Aromorama uh-huh. uh, was behind the Great Wall in 1959. And what the hell kind of smells did they have behind they the Great They had, wall? honestly, some of the, like, Forest? the... They would have, um, yeah, like flower smells or um, I know incense okay. was one of them. Pipe, like uh, like cigar smell kind of. Yeah, yeah I know. It's, um, <clears throat> so for Aromarama, smells were piped in through the theater's air conditioning, which I'm sure the theater owners loved. Yeah. <laughs> Smellorama debuted in Scent of a Mystery with Elizabeth Taylor and... One of my favorites, Denim Elliott, who is Mr. Emerson in a room with a view. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Um, so that comes out weeks later, and this is Smellorama, and they would use pipes connected to vents under the theater seats that would disperse smells. So one of the issues with these types of systems, and which places like Disney have figured out, but it's because Disney, those things are there permanently, like Soren or Mickey's Magic, where they kind of pipe in smells. Uh a bug's life yeah a bug's life but those work because those are permanently those films or attractions are like permanent they're on a more permanent basis they're in there so they can have a more elaborate system yeah, tell that to a bug's life oh, fuck that thing is it it's gone right or it's going to be yeah they're getting rid of that boy yeah i think so i'm not sad <laughs> fuck that thing um but an, in- an issue with these more temporary setups on top of the fact that they're older anyway it's older technology is that once you pump a bunch of scents into a room it's really hard to get them out so yeah. you start the movie yeah. you're good but by the end of the movie you just have a bunch of smells it's all the smells from the course of the whole movie just on top of each other it's like the perfume department yeah that sucks and then you gotta show another movie in there yeah exactly <laughs> 1959's Horrors of the Black Museum is a British film that, when it was brought to the United States, uh, added a prelude to the movie because Americans need gimmicks now. We're used to them. We want it's, yeah, dumb it's shit. We want stupid shit in our movies. And honestly, we need to go back to that. That's the America I want to go back to. A hypnotist would appear on screen before this film, and it was advertised as Hypnovista. And he would hypnotize the audience before the film begins. So I went and watched the the little short they would play. It's like 15 minutes long. He mostly discusses the power of suggestion and how hypnosis leaves you more suggestible and mentally open to certain reality certain things and so then at the end of the 15 minute prologue he hypnotizes the audience and it's basically it's kind of like a a generic look at the thing you're getting sleepy and now you're more open to the horrors of this movie now this power of suggestion is going to be applied to you in this tremendously powerful story you're about to see it has been filled to the brim with suggestion designed to help you experience to the full all the feelings and emotions that the producers intended you to experience. A lot of people, when I mentioned we were doing this episode, brought up this movie as one with a great gimmick, and they said, you probably can't do it because it's not really horror, but I'm putting it in anyway because it has murder in it, so I count. And Tim Curry. And Tim Curry, so of course we're going to talk about it. It's Clue. Clue had a bunch of different endings, and that always I loved when I was a kid. I saw this as a kid. And it was sent to theaters. I believe different theaters got different endings. And there were three of them. Yeah. And so the different endings are different characters are the killer. And so if you watch it now on home release, it's all of those endings one after the other with the final one being the real thing. So yeah, all the ones. They'll play one and be like, but it didn't happen that way. Yeah, it, what if it happened like this? What if it like happened? Like, yeah. And then they yeah. play. Yeah, exactly. So, Which is interesting because that's the thing that still happens. I believe the first Paranormal Activity had different endings uh, with theaters, and I think there are well, other. Wasn't that movies. more as a result of? Uh, was that like a test audience thing? Where I don't know. I I I, I don't I'm know sure if that was an will... intentional like which ending will you get? 
kind of thing. I think there was a movie, either Paranormal Activity or something even more recent, where it had different endings. Really? In different theaters. I'm sure someone can leave a comment letting us know, but I think it was a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Just some other gimmicks. I'll like fly through really quick. I'll fly. Fly <laughs> through it. <laughs> <laughs> I was staring at that as I... Yeah. That's weird. Um, 1958's The Fly, so the original fly. 20th Century Fox offered $100, which $100, that seems so low, to be the first to disprove the film's science. Did anyone collect it? I have no idea. I feel like it couldn't be that hard if you're a scientist. That's true. Right? But also, give me more than 100 bucks. (laughs) That's going to take me a day or whatever to sit there and, and actually disprove the science. Hey, it's 1958. That's probably more than some of those crew members made. Oh my god, that's <laughs> actually a hundred. Yeah, you're right, a hundred bucks in 1958. It's not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, yeah. The uh, 1963 film Dementia 13 released the D13 test, which was a test designed to identify people who could be negatively affected by the movie. So you would. It was like a personality. Test? It was. It was oh. like, are you emotionally capable of watching this film? Okay. Yeah. And in 1970, the film Mark of the Devil would not allow admittance without a barf bag. You'd have to bring a barf bag. Fun. So a more modern example, I mentioned this earlier, is found footage. I think found footage is a great example of modern gimmickry. Because, and I always bring this movie up because I think it's brilliant. The Blair Witch Project uh, found footage on its own is is a gimmick because it's the idea that it's it's real. Um, it's a different experience. It just it feels more real, quote unquote. Yeah. And another like big gimmick that this movie did, in which a lot of movies have followed suit in their marketing. So I would say like a lot of the gimmickry we see now is kind of augmented reality type stuff. Yeah. Um. Which I love. I eat that shit right up. I love augmented reality marketing campaigns. I think they're so fun. Um, Because Blair Witch advertised itself as real. They had fake news footage, all these websites with like all kinds of fake information about the events surrounding the film. They had the characters in the film listed as real people on IMDb. So they were playing themselves because the footage was, of course, real. And those people were listed as missing or dead on IMDb. Yeah. Yeah. I think we dive more deeply into that in our episodes about... Uh, we do. The... Movies that changed horror. That's right. Um, so, yeah, I, that brings us kind of up to modern day. And I have D-boxes on here as a, a thing to talk about. As, yeah, it's a weird thing that it exists. I've, I've got one for you. Uh, would, would you consider this a gimmick that has become uh, part and parlance of our movie experience? Midnight showings. Oh, yes. You know? Because when, when we were in high school, midnight shows were a big deal. They Your were ticket a stuff big would say twelve oh one AM because it was like we can't show this yeah. earlier than this you on can this be Thursday the night. First people to see this. Yeah, it, this movie comes out Friday, so you're going to the theater Thursday night. Your screening will begin at twelve oh one AM. So I it's think technically that's Friday. A great- and example. those were like really big events. People would dress up. I know both of us had pictures from high school where we would dress yeah, up and we go dressed to these movies. Up for them. Uh, sometimes I, a few films, I would get there right after school. And Same. We the would theater. we would wait in the parking lot for hours. It was it was a whole thing. To midnight. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> but nowadays it's not like that. Midnight shows are just Thursday at, pr- 7, at like seven p.m. So it the movie so they can make more money on out. their opening weekend. You know. Yeah. They feel more now. They feel more like a like a studio based decision to okay. We'll just kind of release this movie on Thursday. Say it comes out Friday. Whereas midnight movies, like you said, where they were at twelve oh one, yeah, feel a bit more like the theater making it a thing and making it an event. Yeah, yeah. I will never forget. uh, I don't know if I've told this story anywhere on the channel before, but. (laughs) <laughs> going to see Return of the King mm-hmm. at a midnight screening on a Thursday night. So I had school the next day. Uh, started at 12.01, three and a half hour long film. Holy shit. Get home at four. I had a zero hour jazz band, which started at like 6.15. Oh my so God. So I went home, slept for like an hour, came in. But then the cool thing was we were part of a, a, a self-made club at school because my friends and I did that where we had convinced the teacher, uh, like teacher leader of that group 
to take us to see Return of the King on opening day as part of like a school function. So I just had to go to school for like a class or two and then got to leave to go see Return of the King again. Oh my God. Less than 12 hours after having seen I slept through most of that second airing. But I I just remember it being like 3 a.m. on a Thursday night being like, why won't this movie end? <laughs> like yeah. on the second or third ending. Yeah. But yeah, man. Those midnight shows. Those were didn't so fuck fun. Around. We saw snakes on a plane at midnight. <laughs> nice. We put a bunch of rubber snakes all over my mom's car because she had to drive us. <laughs> and uh I think I was like a sophomore. And then we got all our rubber snakes confiscated at the theater. Oh, they no. took them away because they're like, you're gonna throw these at the screen. You Which can't probably have these. Were. I remember we saw Indiana Jones and uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and one one of our friends came dressed as Indiana Jones, and another kid came dressed as a boulder and chased him around. I love the it. I yep. love it so much. You get shit like that, man. Yeah. Uh, one last one, and then we'll wrap this up. <laughs> we saw The Dark Knight at midnight, and we all dressed up. We each dressed as a character, so I dressed as Poison Ivy. I made a whole costume, and we get there. The movie's about to start. We have front row seats, and which front row sucks i know yeah. you're thinking yeah it. <laughs> but it was the principle of the thing we okay front row sure seats. you're a high schooler <laughs> yeah and i start to feel so sick and i'm like no no no! i'm not letting this happen i'm so excited for this movie like i fucking love those nolan batman movies but then i'm like no i'm i'm gonna throw up so i ran to the bathroom i get sick and then i have to call my dad i'm like hey you have to come get me so he came and got me and I went home and just lay down on the couch, still in my costume, because I felt too shitty to take it off and watch Batman Forever on TV. <laughs> Batman Forever. Oh, no. Yep. And then I went and substitute. saw I saw The Dark Knight the next day. I got up like early in the morning and went to see it, <laughs> so I didn't get spoiled. I'm curious if anyone has these kind of midnight movie experiences. Because yeah. like for high schoolers, it was a fun deal. And we like, I mean, at our theater, MJR in Southgate, MGR. shit got wild yeah. with beach balls and shit oh, like people would bring that's beach so fun. eventually they shut that shit down yeah. but like there was a real golden period of probably half a year where all these like superhero movies were starting to come out and all that kind of shit mm-hmm. and we would be there i remember the simpsons movie and it would just be like beach balls and inflatable toys and just craziness i think we saw simpsons at midnight too yeah yeah, yeah. so let us know if that's, if that's still, still a, a thing. thing i don't know with high schoolers i don't yeah. know but yeah um, let us know if you can think of any other more modern examples of of marketing gimmicks or even things in the theater that are more interactive. I can't really think of like during the movie interactive stuff though. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not counting stuff like Rocky Horror because that wasn't a studio thing. That was people just doing fan it. Derived, yeah. Uh, same thing with the room. The room, yeah. Uh, yeah. The only thing I can think of right now isn't. It, it's not the same. Because I'm just thinking of changes in the movie going experience, whereas now you have these like luxury theaters where you have like the recliner chairs, oh, you can yeah. have some food like delivered to you, uh, like bars, mm-hmm. uh, alcohol drinks, like while you're watching the movie. But that's definitely not the same. It's not a no. It's not. It's a... not a way to augment the the movie experience itself. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, let us know what you guys think. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's those sing along screenings. Oh yeah. I've fun. never been to one of those. I've no interest in going to one of those. I would do it. That'd be It fun. would depend on what the movie is, Rocky I guess. Rocky Horror, man. Well, yeah. Every Rocky Horror screening is a sing-along <laughs> screening. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, this is uh, just to uh, take us out. I have a quote from Terry Castle. Again, this is one Castle's daughter about the future or what, what she thinks he would have done if he was still alive with his, his movies. If you think what my father would do with iPhones and iPads and augmented reality, he would be all over that. <laughs> he would have something where you'd set your phone to do a certain thing and you felt like cockroaches were running up your leg. It would be brilliant. I think that would be cool, actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure someone will come along and do something fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fun episode. I love these research ones. I do, too. I love doing the research for this. I kept getting so sidetracked <laughs> just going down different, like just reading old press books and stuff or things that weren't horror. And I couldn't put them on the podcast at all. Yeah. But yeah. Good work on it. Thank you. Let us know what you think of this. Uh, of any, Give us any movie suggestions that you want us to watch and review for, for next week. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we can come up with something. Mm-hmm. And then I think the week after, because is the week after going to be the last week of October? I think so. 
kind of want to read creepy pasta. Send us your best creepy pastas. Yeah, hit us up with those suggestions. Uh, Wpod at gmail.com. Um, nothing too long. Mm-hmm. Nothing that requires um, like an image to understand because I think some of them come with smiley dog or whatever. Yeah. Fuck that. Fuck that shit. Dude, when I was like, when I did Cujo, I was like, it's the most infamous killer dog of all. People are like, uh, no, Smile Dog is. No. And I was like, no, fuck you. Fuck you. It's Cujo. Fuck you. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Although Smile Dog's pretty fucking creepy. I hate Smile Dog. I like um, it. Yeah. So that's, that's that. That's that. Follow Dead Me on social media at Dead Me James on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm at Carebeck, C-A-R-E-B-E-C-C on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want merch, deadmeatstore.com. Mm-hmm. You can hit up, uh, we already said, deadmeatpod at yep. gmail.com for correspondence. But until uh, next week's movie review, I'm James. I'm Chelsea. And this has been the Dead Meat Podcast. Be good people. There's no comma. There should be. Unless they're just saying, be good, just be good people. Why would I, Vincent Price, master of horror, say such a thing?